Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. We do indeed, and uh, well, there's lots of news coming up for you. We're going to be taking a very close look at a landslide victory, shock victory, for the opposition party in Zambia. The opposition party is a free enterprise party, one that appealed to the youth of that country, telling the youth that the best way out of the economic crisis is through jobs. Familiar? Well, perhaps it is showing what could happen in South Africa, where the incumbent, who'd won the last five elections, was soundly defeated in a landslide. We'll be finding out more about that, and particularly what the South African opposition or the main opposition parties think about it, uh, whether or not this opens the door in a similar situation here in South Africa. Uh, we'll also be talking tonight more about Transnet and finding out how that is going to be going forward, given that the ports of South Africa are now going to be privatized or at the very least bringing in private operators. But before we get into all of that with Stephen Nathan, of course, uh, our Tuesday evening guest, here is my colleague Stuart Lohman and uh, Stu. What's uh, being read on biznews.com today? Um, Alec, just the, the big story, obviously, COVID, we, we don't get around it. Um, my colleague Nadia, uh, Nadia Swat put together a piece with a whole range of views, and that's sort of really doing nicely, getting some uh, conversation going. As it was the bit of Susan Fossler. There's a bit of uh, Dr. Chetty, who I know you chatting to. I'm not I sure did. if it's... No, Dr. Chetty, I spoke to you on Sunday. It, uh, Nadia, um, you're in our Cape Town or in our virtual studio joining us from Cape Town. Uh, I guess you are now going to be called the anti-vaxxer. It seems every uh, time uh, that it, we it, publish… That time has come and gone. Oh, I've, come been and labeled. gone yeah. I've been labeled. Is, isn't but, it astonishing? If you're a, if you're a yes. journalist giving both sides of the story, suddenly you're anti-vaxxer. We've got a Mark Jennings. Yeah, it's, Mark from FMR. Yeah. Uh, the well, station no, manager sent us on something today. There's, there's a listener in FMR who's very angry with us because <laughs> they believe that I am an anti-vaxxer. And why are you giving airtime to an anti-vaxxer? Well, now, Mr. Listener, just uh, let's put this on the record. I've had my vaccine. I've had COVID. If I hadn't had my vaccine, I'm pretty sure I would have had COVID a heck of a lot worse. And you might have noticed, if you're a long-term listener, I haven't missed a skip. Skipped a day, not a day, thanks to the vaccine. So, no, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Uh, but what we do at Biz News is we give every side of the story. So, if Dr. Susan Forslew, who is South Africa's first female heart transplant surgeon, has a view on COVID, yep. Nadia, we should give her the opportunity to to uh, to, to state it. 100%. I completely agree. I think her credentials are valid. Uh, she has a um, very valid point of view. And if we're going to air other people's opinions, uh, she deserves to be heard as well. We're not taking her side. It's just another professional opinion. So, Stu, that's what we believe in and we'll stick to it, that we will be giving all sides of the view and allowing our uh, brilliant community to make up their own mind. Well, I think that's the, the value, Alec. You, you you can't tell people what they should believe in. You give them opinions and they have the intelligence to decide what's best for them. So it's a big credential of business and we'll continue to fight that fight. Indeed. And on this program as well. Never, 
underestimate the intelligence of your audience. Rule number one in journalism. Agreed. Another story you mentioned, Transnet, that was also doing quite nicely on, on .com, Alec, the, them seeking private partnerships um, to help with the ports. We do know that they were ranked in the bottom 10, I think the latest was, worldwide. I mean, last, it, third, last, and fourth last. <laughs> I don't know who was second last, but, uh, but anyway, it wasn't one of ours. No, so I, I, it, we, we've seen that it's also something that looking at ESCOMX uh, and some of the other entities, uh, SAA as well. So it seems to be a government uh, policy at the moment or something to look at. And then the retail dial in Sassel, um, their results came out yesterday, and there's, a, there's two pieces that are running quite nicely. The Shapiro interview from last night, where he looked at Sassel, Naspass, and Obviously, traveling to the U.S., he looked at how COVID has impacted businesses um, in, in that state. And then our very own Justin O'Roberts did a little analysis on the, on the share itself and looking at where it is at the moment with its value at two, just over 200 rand a share. Justin, is it still cheap? It's still cheap, Alec. Where the oil prices and where the chemicals prices are, it, it, it is still a cheap share. The market is um, – they think that com- these commodity prices aren't going to persist for too much longer. And we've seen that not just with Sassel, we've seen that with the precious metals producers, the gold miners. Um, but for now, they're printing money and uh, the debt is half what it was this time last year. So management has done an exceptional job there. Well done, Fleetwood Grobler. Uh, Nadia Swart uh, has always, as always, is looking at what's going on on YouTube and Business TV on YouTube. What are our community watching, Nadia? Uh, the reading community, uh, the top video was the interview of your, um, sorry, the recording of your interview with David Shapiro yesterday on Cecil Naspers reporting all the way from Boston, I think it was. And then again, um, our most recent flash briefing video is being very well watched, which covered Zuma's recent hospitalization and Transnet potential privatization and uh, SARS tracing stolen VBS money. And then the third video is the summary of your interview with David Shapiro last week, in which he said that South Africa, yeah, South Africa now needs to roll out the red carpet for investment. Great interview. Yeah. Mr. Shapps, very popular amongst our community. Uh, Stuart, as as far as the uh, podcasts are concerned? Uh, very similar to video, Alec. Uh, as Nadia mentioned, Shapiro, uh, top of the pops. I think he's a, he is a favorite uh, amongst the community. Um, BPH from last night, the full, the full show. And then the flash briefing with, uh, Jay-Z, Jacob Zuma, sorry, hospitalization. And yeah, so those are the top three podcasts on the radio. Nadia, what's in the news today? So vaccine hesitancy is most pronounced among white adults in South Africa, which is struggling to keep immunization centers busy just three months into the rollout of its inoculation program. This is what a survey showed, and that only 52% of white adults in the country are willing to get a COVID-19 shot, compared to three-quarters of their black counterparts, researchers from the Human Sciences Research Council and the University of Johannesburg said in the highlights of a report due to be released on Wednesday. Side effects and concerns that the vaccine will be ineffective are the most common self-reported explanation for vaccine hesitancy, and those concerns were particularly pronounced among white adults. Defence Force Commander-in-Chief President Sul Ramaphosa says that 10,000 soldiers will remain on SA streets until mid-September in the wake of the recent violent civil unrest. In a letter to National Council of Provinces Chairperson Amos Masondo, which is dated August 10th, Ramaphosa states that the deployment will come at a cost of just shy of 255 million rand. Ramaphosa had initially deployed 25,000 soldiers from July 12th to August 12th. 
the extended deployment, which is at least you know half the original number of boots on the ground, kicked in from August 13th and will run to September 13th. According to the president, the soldiers will work with police in the prevention and combating of crime and preservation of law and order across the country. And the Department of International Relations and Cooperation says contact has been made with a number of South Africans in Afghanistan to ensure their safety after Taliban insurgents entered the country's capital, Kabul, over the weekend. The department has established via the SA High Commission in Islamabad, Pakistan, that they are in contact with a number of SA nationals based in Afghanistan to ensure their safety and provide the necessary consular assistance. This is according to departmental spokesperson Clayson Moniello, who said that the SA government has taken note of the unfolding situation in Afghanistan and is particularly concerned by the plight of thousands of displaced people seeking safety and security amid the deepening crisis in Afghanistan. You have to wonder, Stu, what uh, the people of Afghanistan, what the South Africans were doing in Afghanistan, certainly in this time. It is not uh, not a very pleasant place to have been. Yeah, you can, you've got to question why they were there. And you don't want to make assumptions, but you can sort of get into private security. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're very good at private security. That's one of the areas that uh, South African uh, exports are, are high on the uh, agenda. I wonder how much money it actually brings in for the country. Well, uh, let's fa- catch up now on the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts, as always, has been watching the JSE. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was up at 69,100. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 93 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 54 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 52 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,791 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 28,000 rand. Brent crude is down at $69.80 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 700,000 rand. In the financial news, BHP Billiton unveiled the most sweeping change to its business since the world's biggest miner was created two decades ago, as it plans an escape away from fossil fuels to shift towards what is called future-facing commodities, and clears up some long-standing questions facing investors. BHP will sell its oil and gas operations to Woodside in exchange for shares that it will distribute to its own investors. The company also approved a $5.7 billion of spending towards a, to build a massive new fertilizer ma- mine in Canada and said it will unify its dual-listed structure and shift to a single primary listing in Australia. The shares jumped as much as 9.8%, of the flurry of announcements, but have settled around 7% higher on the JSE today. Michael Berry, the investor made famous by the big short movie, has taken aim at one of Wall Street's hottest stars. Berry's Skion Asset Management owned bearish put contracts against the shares of ARK Innovation ETF, the flagship exchange-traded fund of Cathie Wood and her firm ARK Investment Management. The fund, which comprises of thematic tech-focused bets, tranced the market in 2020, but Wood and Arc have struggled to maintain momentum amid concerns about lofty prices and accelerating inflation. Well, we will find out more about that Michael Berry versus Kathy Wood uh, debate um, in just a little while with Stephen Nathan. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. 
Stephen Nathan on a Tuesday and uh, lots to talk about today. Let's start off with the ports. What a massive story that is. We're going to be talking a little later to Francois Norkia, who's the developer of Port of Gauteng. And he uh, is very well plugged into what's going on at Transnet. But from a broader perspective, to see that finally the penny has dropped, we're an open economy, we need our ports to be functioning, and uh, government's coming to the party. Yes, that is really interesting to see. And I've got a uh, an interesting personal story. In 2004, when I was at Deutsche Bank, uh, we were hired by Transnet, Maria Ramos at the time, to sort of look at uh, at Transnet and, and 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 assist them with a financial strategy, and um, I actually organised a visit for us, so for Deutsche Bank to go down and visit uh, Richards Bay Coal Terminal uh, and also the Durban Port, and 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 not knowing much about ports and uh, uh, logistics around that, I thought let's go and visit. So we went down, a team of three of us, we went down to Richards Bay, uh, the Coal Terminal and the port down there, and then greeting us was this enormous sign. Uh, Richards Bay welcomes Deutsche Bank, uh, and they had this very elaborate reception. I think they thought the head of Deutsche Bank from Germany was coming was coming there. So they, 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 they might have been a little bit <laughs> disappointed. So there was a bit of an awkward moment, but nonetheless. Um, you know, but what really stood out, it was a great opportunity to visit the private sector, because Richards Bay Coal Terminal is privately owned, uh, and, and right next door to them, you've got the government owned. And just the difference in people, the difference in the environment that people working, the level of uh, expertise, you know, was really in stark contrast. And then we went down to uh, Durban. And uh, at that stage, um, Bidvest, I don't know if it's still the same today, but Bidvest was the only uh, private operator of, of terminals. And we spoke to Bidvest the private sector, and we spoke to government. And just to give you two sort of anecdotes that that came out, the one was that uh, uh, the people from Transnet uh, would say that it's incredibly frustrating. Whatever they wanted to do had to go through head office, even if it was just to recruit one person. So they couldn't recruit a person. They would have to go to head office, get the specs, get it all done. So it would take them months uh, to get you know something as simple as that done. And another very interesting thing was around the um, railing uh, to and from the ports. And what what Bidvest would do is they would sort of charge based on a two-way, whereas Transnet would have one rate and they would base it on one way. So they would not be competitive because they wouldn't uh, take into account that the containers would have to come back and they wouldn't adjust for seasonality either. And you just saw some really basic uh, business uh, principles and the enormous contrast. So as you say, the fact that, uh, uh, that hopefully Transnet is going to uh, uh, bring in private sector expertise and resources uh, would do an enormous amount of good for uh, the efficiency of the port and logistics and our competitiveness as a country. But it is interesting, Stephen, if 50% of South Africa's GDP is either imports or exports, and our ports are amongst the worst in the world, I think Durban Probably was, the worst. I think the worst. Yeah. So as a, the as worst a out of 352, if that's possible. Well, it is, it is strange if you think about some, there's some pretty awful places on this world. So just, just a small improvement would have a significant impact on the economy. And if you do bring the private sector in, in the way that is now being proclaimed, it could be a spark for an economy that really needs it. Definitely, as you say, the the you know it's 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 such a critical piece of infrastructure uh, that that could make us so much more competitive and can and can reduce 
the cost of doing business and also ease the cost of doing business. I was speaking to some retailers recently, obviously with the unrest in Durban, uh, they couldn't they couldn't get goods in. Uh, a sizable retailer, say, so said we've missed our whole season. Just we've 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 missed that. Uh, you know, and and obviously their their kind of confidence and motivation to keep on investing uh, in those kind of businesses reduces. So, so we're all going to be losers if we are inefficient. And as you say, uh, the multiplier impact of getting that right on, on so many aspects of South Africa is enormous. And it's, it's great to see that that's the fo- where, where the focus is of government, if this, is, if, this is, you know, if this comes to pass, is that they're looking at areas that can have a large impact on society and on the economy and on job creation, as opposed to maybe window dressing here or there. Uh, so that would be a really big uh, positive sign for us in South Africa. The point you made a little bit earlier on the real basics not being handled suggests as well that if we take the government-owned or government-run institutions like Eskom, uh, now the ports and the railways, and you can go on to many other parts of this economy and put them into more efficient hands, it could be something that none of us have, have even considered uh, the impact. But I guess against that, you have the dead hands of the trade unions. And with trade unions running the economic cluster in government, it's going to be very interesting to see how those discussions go. Uh, yes, that's that. You know, um, I think that's our weariness. So, 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 you know, we're all concerned about, you know, government uh, being a uh, very sort of uh, a socialist and command and control type economy, very, very, not very well. Well, we're well, certainly favoring uh, a government central planning and control of the economy, uh, as opposed to you know letting the free market uh, do its thing, hopefully in a responsible manner. But certainly the free market uh, uh, in just about every country in the world. I think it's almost there isn't really an example where. The government has done a better job than 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 the free market. So hopefully we do see that uh, with government, and that's also part of the uh, the the challenge that that government has is it's very closely aligned, obviously with Labour and still you know the Communist Party, uh, and the unions are very strong. And unions, you know, while they do some good work, uh, also uh, a lot of the time they protect what they have rather than trying to grow what they have. Uh, so it's not the best partnership. Uh, and those are tough choices that government has to make if we are going to progress. And, you know, this will be a good case study to see, you know, which which way they go. There was an election in Zambia and an ANC-type incumbent close to Beijing, Socialist Party, was tranced by an economist who has, uh, for the fifth time, taken on the president and the uh, economist who is free enterprise driven has uh, come out with 2.8 million votes against 1.8 million for the incumbent. Even though the incumbent uh, was had everything stacked in his favor, he has been beaten. I guess the opposition parties in South Africa will be looking at this and saying, hang on, Zambia is very similar to us. They're going through an economic crisis. They have had to default on their debts. They've got amazing assets, the uh, second biggest copper producer in uh, in Africa, and that should alone should be enough to make it into a very prosperous country. Perhaps the winds of change blowing to the north of us would be coming through here in the next election. Who knows? Hopefully. Um, as you say, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, election. And, um, you know, firstly, that they can have 
they can have free and fair elections, I think, is a really big, uh, a big positive, even though the president was accused of some quite strong arm tactics in, you know, not allowing voters to, you know, free access to the polls, etc. So, you know, that's a that's a positive sign that uh, that Zambia still has a, uh, a vibrant democracy. And hopefully we can see a change in power there uh, done peacefully. Uh, so that's a that's a big tick. Uh, and then, as you say, you know, what I've seen from the Zambian elections is that, uh uh, the new uh, president-elect uh, focused on the youth uh, and offered the youth a um, you know a better deal, a more prosperous future. Uh, and in South Africa, it's interesting because we've got you know if you look at our population, we've got a, a bubble at the at the younger end. We've got a very young population, so you know the the the, the youth's ability to influence the electorate is is enormous and probably bigger than than they actually realize if they could collectively mobilize that voting power because uh, when you uh, before you can sort of sort of vote you've actually got to register as votes and i think in south africa we've got quite low voter registration and then even our voter turnout isn't so great so so if if, if that can be mobilized in the correct way it could be very interesting uh, and then as you say uh, alec hopefully um, you know the youth uh, would be voting uh, for someone with uh, a party uh, with uh, growth-friendly uh, uh, policies that are going to create uh, job opportunities, going to create uh, uh, you know prosperity, rather than a populist party that 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 will promise a lot and probably deliver very little, if anything. Uh, so definitely a very interesting uh, uh, election and a case study for us to follow and hopefully emulate in a positive way. It is interesting that the young people of today are so well connected uh, through social media and access to information that they would know that there's 18 million votes that are up for grabs uh, among the political parties. And the one that appeals most to the young vote is is the one that's going to be doing best in the uh, next election, whether it's going to be held now in October or pushed over until March next year in the municipalities. On a more uh, investment focused area. Uh, Michael Berry uh, was made famous in the movie called The Big Short, and he's now taking on uh, the local or the, the latest hero of Wall Street, or certainly of the retail investors of Wall Street, Cathy uh, uh, Woods of ARC, uh, the ARC Exchange Traded Funds. Now, these are big names in the United States, perhaps not as well known here in South Africa. Uh, have you been following that story? Uh, yes, as you say, Michael Berry is a very is a very interesting person. Um, you know, his brief background is he was studying uh, medicine, uh, and he he actually qualified as a doctor, and then he was going on to become a neurosurgeon. Um, but then he kind of went into finance. He was quite interested in finance, so he is a real uh, a real brain surgeon in finance, um, and he's uh, uh, he's a very independent thinker. Um, you know, he's he's he's. He's, he's actually, I think, been clinically diagnosed with Asperger. So he's really bright, but uh, very kind of unemotional. And often in investing, uh, you need to be unemotional because a lot of us get caught up in the fads of the day. And it's very difficult to separate your emotions uh, and, and, you know, from just being rational, uh, you know, when everyone else is losing your heads around you. And, you know, he definitely is that and demonstrated that very much, uh, as you say, in the 2008 financial crisis, he spotted uh, the sort of uh, poor pricing and the poor credit risk of the mortgage-backed securities and the enormous risk 
that that post and he profited uh, very handsomely from that. So, you know, he's somebody who has a good track record and, uh, you know, you want to listen to what he has to say. And as you say, he's definitely going against the, um, the, uh, the enormous popularity of the ARC Fund, which, uh, you know, which invests in uh, sort of new technologies. Uh, so they, they, their single biggest shareholding of over 10% is Tesla. Uh, Tesla, you know, phenomenal company, but uh, it trades on a 360 PE. So it's almost price per, uh, for perfection uh, and also, you know, quite heavily invested in cryptocurrency. Uh, and Michael Berry has been very sort of vocal against that and taken quite a sizable short position against that. Uh, what's also interesting about the shorts, uh, uh, Alec, and you obviously know this, but for some of the listeners, you know, when you're a, uh, an investor and you invest on a short basis, what that means is you sell something you don't own, um, and it's a very it's a it's a it's a very brave, risky thing to do because if you um, if you own a share, you buy a share in let's say Tesla, uh, the most you can lose is your capital. So you know if it goes to zero, you've lost all your capital. But when you short a share, uh, you can actually have an infinite loss because Tesla if, te- if Tesla goes up ten times, then it's basically a thousand. You can lose ten times your 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 investment there, so you've got to be really careful uh, as a short uh, you know, as a short investor uh, because of the the leverage and the extra risk that you're carrying. Uh, but it is you know it is an interesting uh, uh, opposing ends of you know two two smart people taking very different views, and th- that's always a challenge in the investment industry is that you know for every buyer there's a seller, so it's not really about who's smart and isn't smart; it's about who gets it right. Because often you have smart people buying and selling the same investment. Well, it's a warm welcome to John Stenhazen, who is the leader of the Democratic Alliance. John, uh, looking north to what happened in Zambia, I see there was a statement uh, from your side to say that the uh, winner of the election in Zambia, a very surprise winner, Hakendi Hishalima, I'm sure you can uh, give me the correct pronunciations, is actually uh, the leader of the sister party of the Democratic Alliance. How so? Well, um, his party and, and our party are all part of the African Liberal Network. Uh, we were also very privileged uh, two years ago to host uh, Hakendi Hishalima here in South Africa. He came and addressed the DA caucus and Parliament and a few other engagements. And so we're really excited about what his victory means, not only for his country, but I think for uh, other opposition parties on the continent um, that, you know, particularly in the growing era of the strong man in African politics, the big man in African politics, uh, to be able to unseat someone like Edgar Lunga, I think is a significant achievement. And I think it gives us some hope down here in the South that Democratic peaceful change is possible through the ballot box. It wasn't expected at all, uh, certainly from the the feedback that we're seeing in the international media. No, it wasn't expected. I mean, if you look at the past three elections, uh, Edgar Lunga has been very, very adept at using the resources of the state uh, to maintain control and to rig the elections. But I think that the hunger for change in Zambia was so strong this time that it was impossible given the numbers. And if one looks at the margin of victory for Haikinda Shalima uh, and his party, uh, it, I think it was very, very difficult for Lungu to, to try and, uh, and manipulate those results. And uh, he's now said that he's going to hand over power peacefully. And uh, let's hope that that is the case. But 
Uh, this is uh, the third time that, that Hashanim has attempted to get the presidency, and this time he's, he's won it and won it with a big majority. What does he stand for, and what did the incumbent stand for politically? Well, I, I think that Lunga would be very much in the vein of the ANC, sort of autocratic state control uh, or power to the state, whereas Hashanim is, is uh, more liberal in his outlook in terms of allowing uh, market forces, business-friendly, investment-friendly. And that's why he's been doing the circuit um, around Africa and uh, around the world to try and you know, say that Zambia is open for business. It wants the investment, needs investment, and it's now got a president who's pro-business and, and pro-investment and pro-reform. Um, and I, I really think it it's bodes very well for for the continent. John, when you um, read the Wall Street Journal's response on this, uh, their, their view, first of all, that it was a surprise. Secondly, that uh, the incumbent, uh, Edward uh, Lunga, uh, used social, blocked social media. Thirdly, that he, he refused to accept the, that the election was free and fair. And then only once it was shown that he'd really been hammered, uh, did he accept that the election was was uh, legitimate. However, they also make the point that he, the incumbent, was very close to Beijing, that uh, he had a close relationship with China. And might that have played a role at all in this election uh, amongst the way the Zambian people went to the polls? I think so. Uh, you know, if you look at a lot of the repressive regimes in Africa, they rely on China for funding and for loans, etc., because uh, their behavior disqualifies them from World Bank loans and IMF loans because they don't practice democracy uh, and, and respect human rights in their countries. And there's a lot of repression of those uh, of those societies which are not tolerated by those agencies. So China has become, unfortunately, on the continent, um, a lender of last resort to many of these despotic regimes. Um, and I think that also uh, there's a huge extraction for that. Alec, I'm sure you've discussed it many times on your show, the uh, extractive nature of the Belt and Road policy. It's not all about philanthropy and helping smaller countries. And there are countries uh, that have had to lose significant infrastructure when they default on those loans. And obviously that turns into a, a resource extraction opportunity for China, who's very resource hungry. So, and, and that builds up a lot of resentment. I mean, it's certainly if you look at places like Mozambique, you look at Zambia, there's a great deal of resentment that's been built up at what looks like uh, destructive extraction for which there's no beneficiation for local communities and that they benefit nothing from the resources of their country uh, because they're, they're simply being abused. And uh, you know, I think that, that it may have played a big role in the way people vote in this election uh, as much against Lungu as against uh, the overweening influence of China in, uh, in the country. Did he appeal to the youth, Hishalima, uh, the new president? Well, I think he said appeal uh, to a broad section of the, of, the, of the country, but I certainly think that the youth were very excited about the prospects of what he offered for a better future. Uh, I think that if one looks at the state of the economy and the finances in Zambia, uh, there's very little opportunity for young people, and I think they were looking for they were looking for something different, and I think voting for their future, and I think that's reflected in I think the higher turnout from younger voters in Zambia. Again, something that the Democratic Alliance, no doubt, will be working into its plans. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, it's about that generation, the under forties, who are, don't have any emotional ties to apartheid and who are looking for a future. We have the highest youth unemployment rate in the world, not something to be proud of, 
but there it is. A uh, 42% unemployment rate of, of, of adults, uh, working population. Uh, these are people that are going to be looking for a party that's able to offer them a future. And, you know, we better make sure that we're the party that's positioning ourselves there to, to offer them that future. And I think that's the work that I have cut out for me and the work that my party has cut out for, for us to be able to get that positioning right uh, so that those youth don't find uh, succor in the radical policies of the of the radical left and, and parties like the EFF. I know that you are from my home province as well in KwaZulu-Natal uh, and that you were on the ground there very shortly after uh, the rioting and the looting. What did you make of everything that went down, uh, perhaps – your insights that you would have received from sources that the rest of us are are not privy to? Well, I'm lucky enough to be back there um, as we speak. Um, I've had a visit to the Chatsworth and the Phoenix police stations today to engage with the SAPS over their perspective of what went wrong. Uh, Alec, I mean, I, it, it was probably the, the, the darkest day I've experienced in, in my political career uh, to see your hometown burning the way that Durban was burning and to see the widespread looting and destruction, but also the, the huge cost to the economy as international investors watched those plumes of smoke going up. It would have been like watching international investments just literally burning and, and disappearing. Um, I think that we've got a problem in South Africa and that there is a deeper underlying issue of poverty, of uh, exclusion and of unemployment. And I think that was ripe tinder for what was essentially a political spark set off by an internal ANC battle, and it found ripe tinder. So, yes, you know, the big insight I take away is we've got to address these issues um, of the lack of policing, the lack of uh, intelligence, all that. But South Africa's bigger challenge is to address uh, those 30 million people living in poverty and the unemployment and exclusion that, that still exists. And if we don't do it, it was an internal ANC battle that set the spark off this time. Uh, there's plenty more other things that could set off sparks. Uh, and then if it catches fire and rages across the country, there's no police service or army that would ever be able to contain that. So we're really on a race against time and the, rad and the rational center better get its act together quickly uh, because we've seen what happens in countries like Venezuela and Zimbabwe when populism and, and uh, that type of thing gains ground in those and finds fertile ground in those inequalities, those deprivations and those exclusions, uh, what disastrous consequences there can be. So the president needs to get moving with this reform agenda. We stand ready to help him get his reforms through parliament, but we, you know, we can't sit on our hands anymore. We're on a burning platform in South Africa. And if those reforms are not implemented in South Africa, then we're going to have a significant problem. And the feedback you're getting from businesses there, uh, when we spoke with Melanie Vaness, who runs the Peter Maritzburg Chamber of Business, during and immediately after the looting, she said that most of the businesses, or at least 50% of them, would be taking the money that they got from Sasria, and that would be it. They'd be closing up shop. Are you getting a similar message? Yes, that is the case, unfortunately. Look, there was a number of international investments there that were damaged, and it's unlikely that they will reestablish themselves. Um, there are companies that are already looking to relocate to other locations, either in South Africa or outside of South Africa, uh, in order to reestablish their businesses. And this is obviously a big concern for the KZN economy. And the big wobble would have been Toyota. They're a significant employer in Durban and a significant player in Durban. And if they were, for instance, to relocate even one of their lines out of Durban and, 
and diversified, it will have a massive knock-on effect on the economy. So KZN's got a lot of work to do to re-establish uh, investor confidence uh, in, a, in a really fraught environment. Herman Mashaba, the uh, founder and leader of Action SA, joins us now. Herman, uh, the news from Zambia has got to be giving you lots of confidence. The incumbent being comprehensively trounced by the opposition party, which didn't get a look in in how many? Was it five previous elections? I'm sure you've been watching this with a lot of interest. Well, uh, absolutely. I think uh, the elections uh, in uh, Zambia gives us inspiration. It gives us really hope that uh, we, as as much as South Africa is on the verge of collapse, but I think uh, what uh, transpired in Zambia with the elections, without any doubt, it makes me much more determined. As uh, Alec, I'm talking to you right now, I've been in Soweto since 10 this morning, heading a team, painting uh, the Soweto green, and it is unbelievable. Honestly, I'm I'm humbled by the reception we're getting from people of Soweto. We want the youth, uh, we want the 18.3 million South Africans who had given up on voting to come back. Look at Zambia. If it can happen in Zambia, South Africa, we can do it 10 times better. Zambia was very interesting, though. It was a shock result, again, with the incumbent saying that social, well, blocking social media, saying initially that the election had been rigged, and then the numbers were just so overwhelming, giving up. And we've now got a new, a new uh, president there. Well, I think, uh, you know what, my advice to South Africans, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a song I've been preaching uh, since the, the, the formation and establishment of Action SA, that uh, we know ANC is going to come out with our tricks, but the only way we can defeat them, it's our numbers, that even if they can really try uh, their tricks, people of South Africa, let's come out in, with our numbers. 27 years of suffering, you know, I, I, I look at uh, the 27 years of abuse, it's like uh, the 27 years that Mandela seven, uh, to, to spent 27 years in, in jail. I'm saying and asking people of South Africa, let, let us free ourselves uh, from this oppression and abuse that we've suffered the last 27 years. Are you seeing the reaction, uh, Herman? We've noticed, for instance, our interviews that we've had with you on YouTube are being very well watched. Tens of thousands of people are, are downloading and watching them. But on the ground, now that you're in Soweto today, uh, you say it's it's a positive reaction. In what way? It's uh, you know what because um, I'm I'm leading the campaign. Cast passing, they see me, they stop. You know what? Uh, just uh, hardly fifteen minutes ago, or so that's just one of honestly, I don't know how many cases of one professional uh, the black uh, the gentleman stopped uh, and says, you know what. Uh, I'm an ANC person, but let me tell you something. You've more than impressed me and uh, be assured of my vote and uh, just drove past. Just, just one of the, one of the examples of, of the many that we, we, we received today. Uh, my colleague, uh, national director of operations, uh, and on one instance, uh, he says, you know what? EFF, uh, five EFF people went past, uh, and said to, uh, to him, you know what? Let's tell you, uh, we, we are EFF people, but I can tell you we're going to be voting for action SA. and this i honestly anti-doctor we it is something i would really challenge anyone to to come and experience bring cameras and and just keep quiet just follow to see what you are doing so that you, you you're not just getting it from me you're getting it from ordinary people happening in a natural fashion what is it 
that is appealing to them about the Action SA message? Uh, I think it's, it's because of the abuse. Uh, people trusted ANC like I did uh, in 1994 and 1999. But uh, people have, have realized that the ANC has abused uh, that trust uh, in them. And, and they're hurtful and uh, saying, you know what, uh, they can try the tricks to delay the elections, but we're going to get the elections and we're going to go out and come and vote. And I think, look, uh, we it, uh, they've got to really prove uh, what they're preaching and hope that uh, that becomes a reality because if they don't do so one thing the message I'm sending to them then accept the consequences because it can only get worse under the ANC. Look at uh, the president uh, last week uh, with the Zendo Commission. He's demonstrated with beyond any reasonable doubt that his preference and his agenda is the unity of the ANC ahead of uh, South Africans. He's demonstrated with the recycling of his um, cabinet after the resurrection destroying businesses, destroying over 300 lives but he still actually uses the very same ministers uh, that uh, killed our people destroyed the businesses recycled them some of them giving them promotions Herman last time we spoke at the Biz News conference uh, in the Drakensberg you were saying that had the election been held then you were confident that you would take Soweto uh, are you still seeing that at the moment with the municipal elections perhaps either either just around the corner or in March next year? Well, uh, please, uh, I really hope that uh, the uh, Constitutional Court should not really take the responsibility to set a, an, an unconstitutional precedent that uh, we must have elections on the 27th of October. However, if they so decide, uh, we'll take advantage of uh, the extra few months uh, that will be given to us. But as Action SA, we are ready. You will see next week on the 23rd, because the 23rd of uh, this month is the submission of uh, candidate list, uh, the councillors and PR. We are ready as Action SA, and I'm uh, quite confident that they, some of the big parties are not even halfway through. So we're going to demonstrate to South Africans COVID or not COVID, we believe in the rule of law. We believe uh, in having elections as and when they are due. So we've prepared ourselves. Uh, and you can imagine this for us is the first elections uh, uh, in the history of uh, Action SA. What is happening with the election? Just unpack that for us. As you say, it was initially to be held on the 27th of October, but now there's some doubt. Well, uh, because uh, uh, IEC has allowed uh, itself to be manipulated by political parties that are too scared uh, to face uh, the the electorate using COVID uh, uh, pandemic as as an as an excuse and requesting that elections be postponed. Look, right now as we speak, uh, uh, elections are going ahead on the twenty seventh. However, um, uh, IEC supported by the ANC and other parties. Uh, have lodged uh, 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 an application to have this election postponed to early next year as per the recommendations of uh, the Moseneco Commission. So as far as uh, the, the laws of this country and the constitution is concerned, elections are supposed to be held on the 27th. And as, as Action SA, we operate on the basis of elections being held on the 27th of uh, October. And it would really be very unfortunate if uh, the Concord can accept um, uh, the violation of our constitution. But 
if ever they go that route, what we are seeing as Section SA, we will use that opportunity to demonstrate to people of South Africa, people of Soweto, people of Johannesburg, Tony, Ikuruleni, Etikwene, to say, here are big political parties afraid to go to elections. And us as South Africans, we must guard against this because if we can allow it once, they will do it the next time around. So are those the uh, the metros that you're going to be contesting in, the ones you've just mentioned, Ukuruleni, Johannesburg, uh, Chwani, and uh, Tekweni? Absolutely. So far, as Action SA, we prepared to contest the four metros, that is Chwani, Ikuruleni, uh, Johannesburg and Etiquini. But uh, we then uh, uh, have uh, uh, taken a decision to contest two small municipalities, Kwaduguza, Kwaduguza, uh, 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 um, uh, that is uh, in, in KZN, and Newcastle. So we, we're going to be, if, if elections are going to be held on the 27th, we unfortunately will or can only be in a position to contest uh, this uh, six municipalities. In the event of uh, an extension uh, or postponement actually, it's not extension, will be an, an, an unconstitutional postponement. We, we might add another two or three depending on on, on the, the cases, uh, business uh, cases that they can put forward to us. Forgive me for getting personal, but that's my hometown that you just mentioned now, Newcastle. Why are you going there? Is it something to do with the corrupt mayor? Well, uh, it is uh, got to do with a fantastic uh, mayoral candidate, um, uh, Mr. Uh, Faisal Kasim. Uh, unbelievable, the great South African uh, who does unbelievable work, loved by the people, supported by the business community. And when they put together a proposal to us to contest their municipality, uh, I'm sure you're aware I was there a few weeks ago, it would have been... In a, honestly, criminal for 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 me and and, our, and my team to reject uh, uh, not participation. More especially, adding uh, to that it's obviously this uh, criminal mayor who's actually running that uh, that municipality. Extraordinary. And if you are given the extra time to march next door, how many more municipalities might you be contesting, given the the uh, the extra period? Look, Alec, at the moment, uh, to be honest with you, there's not a single municipality in, in this country that does not want us to contest. We've got 278 municipalities in South Africa. To be honest with you, and I really want the people of this country to bear with us, I don't really believe that we can take an additional uh, three. We just don't have the money. We don't have the capacity. Even if someone can throw money at us, I think one thing that is really very difficult in politics is to find ethical leadership. Unfortunately, the ANC has destroyed uh, the moral fiber of society and that's something that it, uh, it's really very difficult, unlike, unlike in the business world. You know, in the business world, uh, when 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 you have uh, uh, an unethical person, uh, you you can quickly deal with it. But in a political environment, uh, it's about it's a bit much more complex, and one needs to really manage such dynamics. So I would not really want to really compromise the good work that we've already done by just really taking people for the sake of uh, contestation. Unfortunately, there's just no way that we'll do more than ten. So 10 would be maximum. And only 
uh, in the event of the this unconstitutional postponement of our of our elections. And uh, to close off with where we began, uh, the new Zambian president H uh, H Ikalema. Uh, have you met him? Do you know what he stands for? Well, absolutely. I'd, I've never met him uh, personally, but I dropped him a, an official letter of congratulation and asking him to please uh, serve uh, people of uh, Zambia, people of Zambia, particularly the youth. The youth have entrusted the huge responsibility of him to really turn that country around, a country that uh, for years has been run on this uh, outdated socialist uh, policies. Let him bring in a free market economy, allow the, the Zambian people to flourish and be themselves and allow democratic principles uh, to, 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 uh, to, to be the order of the day. But what is more important for if he recognizes and it must be uncompromising to, to get the business community um, to be Zambian money and international money, get money into the country because that's the only way that you can give dignity to your people and your nation. Well, it's a warm welcome to Francois Norquia, uh, who's become our go-to man when it comes to anything to do with Transnet. Francois is the developer of Port of Gauteng, which is a inland port, uh, which is just outside of Johannesburg. So you've got a strong vested interest, Francois, in following what's going on uh, with Transnet in particular. Let's just start with the ports, the idea that they will perhaps be privatized or is that very much on the table now? It looks like it. There was rumours uh, to that effect since beginning of last year. And now we've got a formal announcement. We, you know, we spoke about three weeks ago. It's needed. Private sector help is needed. It's a big organisation and it's complex. I think it's the right thing. I'm very happy this morning. Something that we needed. But what exactly does it mean? Does anybody really want to take over those ports? I'm sure there's people that will take it over if they allow them. Uh, there, there's enough cargo flowing through it, so there's money to be made. It's specialized stuff, it's, it's involved. It's not running a small little shop. You know, I had a talk the other day uh, with a friend of mine, and, and we, we, we talked about it. If you want to run Transnet as the way it is today, we, we have the opinion, humble opinion, and need somebody like a, a, a Brian Joffe or a Gianni Ravazzotti. It's a big organization, complex. How many of these people come around every generation and stuff like that? And uh, these SOEs need help of, of private sector, guys that specialize in it, that needs international experience. I, I'm so happy. I, I can't tell you. I honestly think it's the way forward. And uh, hopefully the unions will support it and see why it's happening. Uh, it's a very, very uh, a joyous day. Uh, I think it's the right di- thing in the right direction. I'm very happy. What does it actually mean that Transnet would be looking to the private sector coming into the ports? Does it mean that a Grindrod, for instance, would be able to acquire the license to operate the port of Durban? Or a portion of it. I think that they'll have to allow two or maybe three to create uh, competition. And there's a few people that can get involved. Costco can get involved. Uh, they took over some port in, in Greece uh, seven or eight years ago, it was a terrible port. It didn't feature on the radar. And now it's uh, the fifth best port in Europe. Then there's the guys that run uh, Singapore port. I think they're called Hutchinson's. There's Dubai port. There's Maersk. There's MSC. You mentioned Grinrock. There's six 
people that uh, or that I think that can compete to uh, run portions of it, and then they can share the netcore line to to Joburg, and each have a terminal in Joburg, and we can have efficiencies, and the whole country can benefit. Logistics costs can uh, come down because the the we we need the whole system to work. Road, rail, we can't just have the N3 to to uh, Joburg and. That's it, and finish and plot. Uh, so, yeah, and, and and everybody wants the ports to work quicker. If you want to export citrus or fruit, can you imagine how stress were you in this last month or whatever? Agricultural products are so sensitive. The mining is booming. Every time when there's a commodity boom, we say we're missing the commodity boom. Port of Durban is not going to work properly. We're going to miss the next commodity boom again. And at least they've accepted now that it's Durban, it's not uh, uh, Cape Town and Kucha, because it's the shortest route to Gauteng. It might take a week longer than dropping something off at Kucha, but it costs you 7,000 rand less. So it's it's the, the least cost, most efficient. And importers can work around a week later if the ship passed Kucha by and dropped off in Durban, uh, then dropping it at Kucha and then putting it on the train. But they can't live with 7,000 rand a container more because that's what it costs more to take a container from PE to uh, Joburg, uh, Kuberga to Joburg, or versus Durban to Joburg. So it is the most efficient route. So now they're going to spend the money on Durban. They're going to get private expertise in. I can just repeat it again. I'm happy and I hope this follows through and they take the unions with it. It will be good for the country and for all the businesses that surround it and needs it. So that's the ports on the one side, but what about the rail links? If the ports are operating and the rail links aren't, um, we might be grinding into some kind of a halt there. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm positive that it will come, uh, that the, the guys that are going to put in the tenders are going to say something to that effect. We need to take it port to port, port of Durban to port of Gauteng, something like that, and we need to have the whole chain. You can't just give them a, a, a small piece. You need to give them the ecosystem. And uh, if you take the port of Durban, you need the netcore line, at least up to Joburg, but maybe even to Pyramid and Pretoria. What is the netcore line? The NATCO is the old Natal Corridor. It stands for the Natal Corridor. So it's the, the line that comes from Durban to uh, Gauteng. That's basically the N3 of the railway uh, systems, the NATCO line. But isn't that the line that's been vandalized through the theft of mm-hmm. copper cable? That's been vandalized, and that's why it needs private sector that can protect it and that can look after it and can make sure it's efficient. It's got problems, uh, but it hasn't been realigned or put in better position for 70, 80 years. So it's 635 kilometers long. The entry is 550 kilometers long. Because the entry has been made shorter, things got cut out. It's got gradient issues. It's got slope issues because it goes over the Dragonsburg. So it's not the most efficient line to run. It's a very complicated, it's not an easy thing to run. And you need the best of the best to, to run it, to make it compete with the N3. Otherwise, it's just going to be the N3. And that's why I'm sure with these guys on board, it will be the first step. And and, and I'm sure the Gernrots and the Costco's and the Mersk and the MSCs and Hutchinson's and Dubai ports, they know this, this setup. They know the, the, the issues. And they will tell that in this. Uh, and that's why I'm glad it's an open-ended request for proposals. It's not, this is what we want. Tell us what you're going to pay for it. You tell us how this thing must work. That's how, what I read. Uh, that it's not a uh, casting uh, stone where we translate said this is what we want to put out, just give us the price and the operating parameters. They've left it open for the private sector to, to be creative and to come with ideas. Francois, what kind of investment would this require? 
A few billion rand. A few billion rand. No, it, it can't be less than that. Ten billion, uh, hundred billion. They're talking, uh, you know, and that's not uh, to dig out more. So, yeah. and you know, the, these projects are always under costed. So it might cost more than a hundred billion. And Transnet, we spoke about it last time. Transnet's balance sheet can't handle it. They just can't borrow that kind of money. So they they have to get these guys in. But it's also the expertise that they bring with it. I know that uh, there, there's been guys that looked at, you know, as I said, when the rumors was out about it last year, before the lockdown. There was rail specialists from Australia and Singapore that was here that looked at it. So when the, 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 the guys that's going to put in proposals, it's not going to be me and you that's going to try and uh, run this thing. It's going to be sophisticated logistics companies with international experience, knowing how trains must enter and leave harbors and other things. The, the whole value chain must, uh, ecosystem must, work for it to work. It sounds good on paper, but we have had great instability, particularly in KwaZulu-Natal, July 2021, our month of shame. Would this not chase away investors? What would appeal to them? Uh, what would attract them to, to make that kind of investment? Alec, I remember the 1976 riots, and then people said, what's going to make people invest in this country? And then we had the 1980 riot, and then we had the state of emergency. It would have been better if we never had it. But investment come after that again and business people look at it, they weigh up risk return and as I said, since nineteen seventy six I remember people say this is the last, nobody will put us in South Africa again. And people carry on because there's seventy five million people living from the port of Gauteng to Lumbumbashi roundabout. They need this stuff somehow. They go trucks through the Sahara Desert, you know, where people live seventy five million people aren't gonna move. They're going to eat. They're going to import. There's mines in, uh, in Lumbumbashi, copper mines. The stuff needs to go in and out. Those people need TVs. They need fridges. There'll be a way, and there must be a way. And it might just be more expensive than previously, but you, you cannot, as I said, there's 75 million at least people living from the port of Gauteng to Lumbumbashi. And uh, it's not easy to bring that stuff through Beira or to Walthus Bay. or it's not, imposs- it's not possible, basically, to bring it through Angola. Yeah, we've got the route, the N3 to Joburg, Joburg to, to Messina, Messina to Harare, Lusaka, Lumbumbashi. It's an established trade route. You look at some of those old Chinese trade routes that they now reinsert. It's I believe it's 5,000 years. There's a certain pattern. That's a place that that's how you get the stuff in. That's what, how you get the, the stuff out. Durban to Lumbumbashi is a trade route, and it, and it will be there, and it, it's not going to disappear. What happens to Transnet in all of this? They'll get smaller. It's basically what's happened to SAA in a different thing. You Now you get the private sector in help with it. It's basically what happened with Telcom. Telcom was a fully owned uh, state company, and then they sold shares off and got private sector guys to, to run it, and it wasn't the government, uh, the Minister of Post and Telecommunications that appointed the head of Telcom anymore. And it looks like that is the model we are following in South Africa. But if we can just speed it up and uh, take it to its national uh, Progression, then it will be good for us because this is needed. Well, thanks for being with the Biz News team today. I'm Alec Hogan from our uh, full studio, our virtual studio with uh, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts in Cape Town and Stuart Lerman here with me in Johannesburg. Until the same time, same place tomorrow. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team 
at Biz News.